Transfer Sports Network listeners, welcome to episode eight of the call sheet. This is Kevin Smith, host of the show and also co-host of the Here We Go podcast with Brian Anthony Davis over at the Steel Curtain Network. And I'm thrilled as always to be with everyone here and to talk about the great game of football with all of you. So it is now late May. And as the calendar heads towards June, we're going to actually have some real football to talk about soon. It's it's OTA season for the pro teams, for for teams like the high school team that I coach. We're at the Wayne Camp talking to some people today about setting up the summer schedule and the seven-on-sevens and the things that, well, it's not real football. It's football in shorts season, really, more than anything else. But football in shorts is one step closer to real football. So there's going to be an awful lot to talk about very soon. But before we look to the season ahead, Today, the show will be about reflection because we have an occasion worthy of that in the passing of the great Jim Brown, who died this week at the age of 87. And specifically today on the call sheet, we're going to talk about Jim Brown's contribution to the sport of football and his role as well as a social activist and an advocate for civil rights in the tumultuous 1960s. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to look at how the running back position, which Jim Brown once defined and was once the most glamorous position in football, how that's changed over time and how the prototype for what's desired in an NFL back has evolved from Jim Brown's time to what it is today. And I think that'll be a really interesting conversation. I'm a history teacher and I can't help but do the history of things because I find it fascinating. And so a little mini history on the running back position today. First though, I'd like to give a shout out to my father, Mike Smith, who recently celebrated his 80th birthday and he's rehabbing right now from a little knee replacement surgery. My kids are now referring to him as grandpa Octo, which is pretty funny. Um, But my dad grew up on uh, near Atlantic City on the Jersey Shore, but but he was a Cleveland Browns fan. And quite naturally, Jim Brown was his favorite player. So I asked my dad in the wake of Jim Brown's passing if he would share with me a few recollection of, recollections of Jim Brown that I could pass along to the audience on the show. And real quick, here's a few things that my dad talked about, his, his remembrances of Jim Brown. At first, he remembered how slowly Jim Brown would get up after being tackled, how it always seemed like he was hurt. His chin strap would be unbuckled and his face mask twisted sideways and there'd be mud and dirt and blood on his uniform. And for a second, you'd think he was going to remove himself from the game and he'd limp back to the huddle and you'd think he's exhausted. And then Cleveland would call the same play that they just run And Jim Brown would trample through the defense like he had just trampled through the defense. My dad likened it to Muhammad Ali's rope-a-dope, which is just one of several Brown-Ali parallels that we'll talk about here. But as my father recounted, Jim Brown was a magician at lulling you into thinking that you'd gotten the best of him, only for him to repeatedly get the best of you. And his second big recollection was of Jim Brown's rivalry with the New York Giants in general and linebacker Sam Huff in particular, who, as my father said, was one of the only players in the league at that time who could handle Brown one-on-one. 
And the Giants were perennial contenders back then. They made it to six NFL championship games between 1956 and 1963. They only won one of those, but they were they were there every year. And they were known for their ferocious defense. The Giants once held Jim Brown to eight yards rushing on seven carries in a playoff game. But on the other hand, in 1963, Jim Brown throttled the Giants for 209 rushing yards in a game. It was a great rivalry. The Giants and Browns were in the same conference back then. They played twice a year. And those games were always grudge matches, my dad said. And the hitting was ferocious. And he likened it to the Steelers-Ravens rivalry of today. And that Steelers-Ravens rivalry is poignant between me and my father because my dad followed the Browns well beyond Jim's re- Jim Brown's retirement from the game. And that set up some pretty intense Sunday afternoons when I was a kid since I had become a Steelers fan. And I got to give credit to my dad for not demanding that I also become a Browns fan. And I'm fully aware how it must have killed him when I chose the Steelers. And so much so that he and I never watched Cleveland-Pittsburgh games together when I was growing up. One of us would be in the den and one of us would be in the basement, usually me in the basement because the better TV was in the den and you know my dad wasn't giving up the good TV. And I don't really remember much trash talk or any of that back and forth maybe just some quiet gloating on the part of the victor. But when Art Modell moved the Browns to Baltimore in the mid-90s, my dad followed them, and he became a Ravens fan. There were no Browns for a couple of years, and almost immediately the Pittsburgh-Baltimore rivalry became one of the most intense in the NFL. So needless to say, we don't watch Steelers-Ravens games together. It's about the only thing football related that we don't do. My dad's been traveling all over the country to watch me play and coach football for over 40 years. And I'm really lucky to have his support and grateful that we've been able to share so many memories together uh, through the great game of football. But back to Jim Brown. Jim Brown was one of pro football's first superstars. He led the league in rushing for eight of his nine seasons in Cleveland. He never missed a game. I think that that's a remarkable statistic. Jim Brown played 118 straight games at the running back position where he was one of the most physical players to ever carry the football. And then in 1965, after being named the league's MVP and still just 30 years old, he walked away. The league had never seen anything like it. The best player in the league, one of the best in the history of the league in his prime, walking away. Some Some may remember when Barry Sanders did something similar or Calvin Johnson, or even more recently when Andrew Luck walked away. It's always kind of shocking when these players in their prime walk away. Jim Brown was sort of the prototype for that. So Jim Brown was six foot two and 230 pounds at a time where that standbys for a lot of the linemen who played in the league. And Brown was an angry runner. He ran angry with the football in his hands. Punishing tacklers, fighting for every yard. You know, the phrase man amongst boys comes to mind, except those were not boys with whom he was playing. Maybe the phrase giant amongst men is a better description. Brown led Cleveland to their last championship in 1964 before retiring to make movies of all things, which is interesting. I remember him in a goofy Tim Burton movie from the 90s called Mars Attacks, in which Brown played a retired boxing champ 
who worked a ho hokey job at a Vegas casino and winds up saving his family from the aliens in the end by punching them all out. It was a totally ridiculous movie and ridiculous role. But he made weightier films too, like The Dirty Dozen and uh, the football classic Any Given Sunday, which contains one of the great fictitious coaching speeches of all time by Al Pacino, the, the Every Blade of Grass speech. And Jim Brown wasn't too bad in his post-football career of choice. But it was his cultural impact that really inspired people. Jim Brown famously organized the 1967 Cleveland Summit, which was a meeting of some of the nation's most prominent black athletes in support of Ali's protest against the Vietnam War. Ali's famous line, I ain't got no quarrel with the Vietnamese. They ain't never called me the N-word. Paraphrasing that last part, of course. And his subsequent refusal to be inducted into the military made him a lightning rod for controversy at a time when much of America was still segregated and when there were very different sets of rules for black and white. And the Cleveland Summit helped to rework Ali's image in American society. He went from being seen as a pariah to someone whose religious and cultural values were better understood and respected. The summit's been described as a significant turning point for the role of the athlete in American society and as one of the most important civil rights acts in sports history. And additionally, while he was still playing, Jim Brown founded the Negro Industrial and Economic Union, which was an organization focused on creating jobs and supporting black entrepreneurs. And then later in his life, he started a venture called AmeriCan for at-risk youths in inner cities in an attempt to curb gang violence and get predominantly young black kids off the streets. You know, like, like many superstars, Jim Brown was a complicated figure. He feuded on and off with the Browns organization over the years. He was accused of domestic violence by his wife, who later recanted the accusation, but several other women accused Jim Brown of trying to intimidate or bully them. His stated message of creating equal opportunity met plenty of resistance, and he didn't always handle that resistance diplomatically. He was a complicated figure for sure. You know, I think about the current political climate in the United States and at what happened to Colin Kaepernick a few years back when he decided to become a social activist. Now, I wonder what, what would have happened to Jim Brown if he were playing today. America was a very different place in the 1960s. And though Brown and Ali and other high-profile Black athletes who spoke out about injustice like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Russell were criticized by segments of the population, you know, a climate existed then that permitted discourse. The country was inflamed by a host of issues, race and gender, economic inequality, the war in Vietnam, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. But it was acceptable then to speak out. In some regards, the speaking out itself was considered patriotic. It was the principle upon which this country has been founded, freedom of speech and the right to protest and while those who did speak out still risk repercussions because of it, the convictions that athletes like Brown and Ali held were considered worth the risk. Today, though, I don't know. I'm curious how Jim Brown would have been received if he were in his prime today. Jim Brown, the activist, I mean. Or would there even have been a Jim Brown, the activist? Would Jim Brown have remained silent? or at least tone things down out of fear that he would lose his salary or his endorsements. 
the money professional football players were paid in the 1960s was so low that most players had a so-called regular job in the off season just to support themselves. Today, a superstar like Brown would make tens of millions of dollars, but in return, he'd be expected not to rock the boat lest he be dealt with like Kaepernick. So it's interesting, really, to consider whether Jim Brown would have been Jim Brown, both on and off the field, had he been a product of this contemporary moment. And that's really a debate for another time and perhaps another platform. But from a football perspective, there's many reasons why we will never see a running back the likes of Jim Brown again. One is his sheer physical dominance in the period in which he played. Again, Brown was about the same size as many of the linemen playing the game at that time with the speed of a modern running back. For perspective, imagine a running back today who was 6'5", 305 pounds with balance and vision who ran a 4'5", That's not a thing. And barring some freaky genetic engineering experiment, that's not going to ever be a thing. You know, in that sense, I was thinking about some of the athletes whose physical dominance over their team sport has been unparalleled. And it's a pretty short list. You have Wilt Chamberlain in basketball. And maybe in baseball, you have Babe Ruth. You have Michael Jordan, who was a dominant figure for sure, although Jordan had plenty of help at a time when the NBA had changed and was much more of a team sport. And the same is true for Wayne Gretzky on the Edmonton Oilers in the 1980s. I mean, really, if we're talking about sheer physical dominance and not necessarily team success, I'd argue that Brown and Chamberlain are in a class by themselves. Chamberlain was so physically dominant that the NBA changed its rules because of him. They widened the lane, they instituted offensive goaltending, and they changed the rule on foul shots to prevent Chamberlain from leaping from the foul line to drop the ball through the hoop, which he was able to do. He he was so long, he could actually just leap from a two-footed stance and nearly dunk the ball, and that's how he made free throws. And they had to change that rule because of it. And Jim Brown was responsible for rule changes too, but interestingly, not in football, in lacrosse. Brown was such a dominant lacrosse player at Syracuse University that the NCAA passed a rule That said, a player carrying the ball must keep his stick in constant motion. That's because Brown would tuck his stick to his chest and basically trap the ball against his chest and then simply charge through the defense and route to the goal. And there's nothing anybody could do to stop him. And so the Jim Brown rule exists today because of this. The NFL didn't change any rules because of Jim Brown, but he did create the prototype for the then modern NFL running back. Once Brown came along, the search for future Jim Browns was a regular occurrence in the game for a long time. You know, there are runners in the game today who resemble Brown in some ways. Derrick Henry comes to mind. But players have gotten so much bigger elsewhere that Henry, as physically imposing as he is, does not dominate his peers the way Brown did. Because of this, stylistically, and from a scheme perspective, the running back position has evolved tremendously. So we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to look at that evolution. How has the position changed over the years? And why is the Jim Brown model no longer common or even feasible? So stick around and we will dive in on the making of the modern running back in just a minute.
Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you talking Jim Brown's influence both on and off the football field. And now in the second segment of the show, we're going to look at how Brown defined the running back position for generations in pro football, but also at how that prototype has evolved into something very different today. So to understand that evolution, let's start by looking at the philosophy of offensive football in the 1950s and 1960s. This sport was played very differently back then. On offense, the features were tight formations, very little passing. The mentality was pretty much three yards in a cloud of dust. That was the, the old Woody Hayes quote. And a, a runner like Brown was the ultimate asset in that regard. He was a workhorse back. He could carry the ball 25 or 30 times a game uh, on sweeps and traps and power runs. Passing was so risky that Hayes, the legendary Ohio State coach, once said, three things can happen when you throw the ball and two of them are bad. And that was really the thought process for a lot of coaches at that time. You had the occasional outlier like the innovative Sid Gilman. But for the most part, teams adhered to this conservative mindset. And the signature play in that era of football was the power concept. The idea behind powers as old as football itself. You create a numbers advantage or you find a way to get overwhelming force at the point of attack. Historically, the power run shows up as early as 1905 in the playbook of Fielding Yost, who was one of the original coaching giants in the sport. 1905, Teddy Roosevelt was president of the United States back then. For those of you who need to kind of put a face or an identity on a date, And there aren't many things that are still with us today that look the same as they did in Teddy Roosevelt's era. So the same is true of the power run play. We'll get to how that's changed in a minute. But the bones of the play, meaning its core blocking scheme, is really still the same. On a power run, the blockers on the front side of the play, meaning the point of attack, they all block down on the defenders to their inside gap. So what that means is this. If I'm the right tackle and we're running power to the right, I'm blocking down on the defensive tackle in the gap between me and the guard to my immediate left. Or if there's no defender in that gap, I'm climbing to the linebacker on the backside of the play. I'm still going down inside. And the playside tackle, playside guard in the center, they're all doing this. They're all blocking gap in the same fashion. And this is nice because it gives you good angles on defenders. Leverage is always good when you're blocking. And you can get double teams on interior defenders. If there's not a a lineman in the gap of the guard, he can double the tackle that's in the B gap or the gap between the guard and tackle until he has to come off on the linebacker. It's a physical scheme, and it allows the play side blockers to get off the ball with aggression. And then meanwhile, on the backside of the play, you have a, a pulling guard who's wrapping up to the play side linebacker. And this block coincides with somebody Back in the day, it was almost always a fullback kicking out the play side end. So when you put it all together, you have blockers trying to create an opening over where the play side tackles align. The front side blockers are trying to build a wall to their inside while the fullback's kicking out the end and the backside guard is wrapping around for the play side linebacker. And if you do it properly, a seam should emerge for the back to run through. It's a force on force play which is really the philosophy on which the game was founded and was adhered to for a long, long time. You know, 
power is not designed to be an explosive play. I mean, it can be if the defense fails to fit up properly or they don't tackle well, but that's the exception and not the rule. Because the run hits between the tackles, there's a lot of bodies in a tight space, and those types of plays rarely hit big. So four yards, that's the goal on power. And with the likelihood that any back running the play will have to bloody his nose to earn those four yards, the ideal running back for a scheme like power is a big and physical runner who can slam it up into the hole and pound his way forward. It's like watching one of those old gladiator movies where the rival army uses a battering ram to break down the doors of the walled city they intend to invade. If you keep battering the defense with the power run, much like that city door, it'll eventually give. So under this philosophy, Jim Brown was ideal. He could beat a defense up on the inside power run, and then when they overcommitted to stop it, the Browns could send him outside on the sweep play, which attacked the flanks. And Brown was big and strong enough to be an elite power runner, but he was still fast enough to be valuable in space. That was the model for the running back position for a very long time. Attack the inside first, and then work the outside when the defense was compromised. And there were plenty of backs who came after Jim Brown who emulated this style of play. None none of them did it as well as Brown, but they were great backs nonetheless. There was Jim Taylor in the 1960s, for example, the great Packers running back. The Packers perfected the Lombardi power sweep with pulling guards and a fullback all leading Taylor outside. In the 1970s, big backs like Chuck Foreman in Minnesota, Franco Harris in Pittsburgh, or the great Earl Campbell in Houston all advanced the philosophy of running the offense through a power back. Campbell was probably the most like Jim Brown. He was a ferocious runner, but that ferocious style was unsustainable. His first four years in the league were about as good as any runner in history, but then the injuries began to break him down, and he was out of the league by the time he was 30, just like Jim Brown. Today, it's really sad, almost devastating to watch Earl Campbell move. He can barely walk. He has to use chairlifts to get upstairs. His knees and his hips are just ruined. But he was amazing to watch play. As a kid, my friends and I played this ridiculous game we called Steel Curtain. One of my friends had a yard that was really small. It may have been 10 yards by 15 yards max. And it was ringed on three sides by a chain link fence. And the fourth side emptied out onto the sidewalk. And what we would do is we would play a game where you'd get as many kids as you possibly could crammed into that little backyard. And the rule was this, you had to run the ball. You started at one end of the yard. And again, the field was maybe 15 yards long by 10 yards wide. And the end zone was the sidewalk. And you got four downs to run the ball and tried to get onto the sidewalk. And we just threw bodies at one another. We would pad up. And by pad up, I mean put on as many layers as possible, sweatshirts, jackets, et cetera, because you knew you were going to be hitting one another as hard as you possibly could. And the touchdown being the sidewalk, that ultimately meant that somebody was being tackled onto the concrete or the pavement, and nobody cared. We just loved the idea of playing that brand of football because that's how football was being played at that time. And everybody, everybody in my friend group wanted to, quote unquote, be Earl Campbell. One of the great parts of playing that game was you got to declare who you were. When when everybody would gather around and you were choosing up teams, you'd immediately say, oh, I'm I'm Earl Campbell. And then four or five kids would fight about it. I'm Earl Campbell. I'm Earl Campbell. 
Everybody wanted to be Earl Campbell because the goal of the game was to run over and through people. And nobody did it better than Earl Campbell. But the funny thing was I had one friend, my friend Jay, who didn't want to be Earl Campbell. He always wanted to be Walter Payton because by the time we had gotten to the early 1980s, the game of football was beginning to change a little bit. Jay always wanted to be Walter Payton, whose nickname was Sweetness, which was about as appropriate a nickname for a football player as there has ever been. The forward pass at that time, that vile notion that Woody Hayes once scoffed at, was becoming more prominent. And Bill Walsh, the 49ers coach, had introduced the West Coast offense to the world, which emphasized quick passes and timing routes, and which utilized running backs as receivers as much as it did as battering rams. Bill Walsh had a back named Roger Craig. Those who are of a certain age can remember Roger Craig's distinct running style, the high knees that he used violently to run through tackles. But he was a devastating weapon for Walsh as much out of the backfield as a receiver as he was as a runner. Walsh was able to get him matched up against linebackers in coverage and then get him the ball in space on swing and option routes. And having a running back with the ball in space, that produced chunk plays. Before this, before this mentality, the idea of a big play was usually defined by throwing a bomb down the field. Now, beginning with Walsh, it could be accomplished differently by getting the ball out of the quarterback's hand quickly and forcing the defense to tackle fast receivers in space. That was innovative thinking. And in many ways, Bill Walsh changed the game with it. But no back was better suited for that philosophy than Walter Payton. Payton was a brilliant receiver. And the Bears liked nothing more than to swing him the ball in a glorified sweep play and then let him do his thing. All NFL teams still operated out of a base 21 personnel package, which means they featured two backs and a tight end and two wide receivers. Personnel groupings, for those who, who aren't quite sure, are numbered this way. It starts with your number of backs and your number of tight ends, and the number of receivers is then assumed. So 11 personnel, one back, one tight end. 21 personnel two backs, one tight end, 12 personnel, one back, two tight ends, et cetera. And back, back then, everybody was still 21 personnel. But with Walsh's scheme in San Francisco and smaller, shiftier backs like Peyton in Chicago, Barry Sanders in Detroit, and then a few years later, Thurman Thomas in Buffalo, the mindset started to shift. Power still had its place, but the best offensive minds at that time saw the value of speed and space as well. So the Bills, the Bills are an interesting component in all of this. They really revolutionized offensive football. Buffalo's K-Gun offense, led by quarterback Jim Kelly, was exceptionally innovative. They ran a hurry-up, no-huddle offense all game long. That was unheard of. Teams had used that tempo at the end of games when they needed to go fast to score, but nobody thought to do it all game long. It just seemed inconceivable that an offense could sustain that pace. But the thing that made it so effective is that it turns out it was defenses who couldn't keep up. The tempo at which the Bills played forced defensive coordinators to simplify their scheme, which gave Buffalo a great idea of what to expect and they could call the game accordingly. But defensive linemen who were still big and sometimes sloppy, not in the greatest condition and didn't move particularly well, they tired really quickly against the no huddle offense. And once they did, it was easier for Buffalo to run the ball at them using the slashing Thurman Thomas, who was a perfect hybrid 
in an age, the early 1990s, where the passing game and the speed at the running back position were becoming paramount. Thomas was just 5'10 and 200 pounds, a far cry from Jim Brown, but he was perfect for the K-gun. He was powerful enough to run inside, quick enough to get to the edge, and what made him really effective was he possessed excellent hands, which made him a dangerous receiving threat. You know, the Bills were also one of the first teams to pretty much abandon the fullback. Instead, they implemented a third receiver and spread defenses out, which really made defenses defend the full width of the field. I mean, this was really the beginning of the 11 personnel approach. Three receivers, a tight end, and one running back. That's the approach that dominates the game today and really has for the last 15 to 20 years. The lack of a fullback made the power run less common. I mean, teams still ran it. Some would use a fullback. Others used a tight end to turn out the defensive end. But the more common run play and the staple of modern rushing back running attacks today really became inside zone. Inside zone is a topic I'm going to cover in detail very soon on this show because it really is the jumping off point for modern offenses. And in order to understand modern offenses, you have to understand inside zone. We're absolutely going to cover that on the call sheet soon. But <laughs> for the sake of sticking to the topic, right, we'll confine ourselves really to talking about the evolution of power. Understand inside zone, though, really, right for right now, is a great play against a lighter box from the defense, where linemen pretty much blocked an area rather than a man, uh, and the backs, rather than smashing their way through a predetermined point of attack, read the movement of the defense and tried to use it against itself. If the defense flowed one way, the back looked to cut back against it. Very, very different idea from the power mindset. And so in this scheme, powerful runners were still valuable, but backs who could combine power with shiftiness, vision, and an ability to catch the football, they were now ideal. And Thurman Thomas was the prototype. And that Bill's offense, the K-Gun, it really launched us into the modern age. After Thurman Thomas, it was Marshall Falk. Today, it's backs like Christian McCaffrey and Saquon Barkley. You still have the Derrick Henry types, but they're starting to kind of feel like dinosaurs. The Chiefs, for example, they won the Super Bowl last year with a 5'10", 200-pound rookie running back who they took in the seventh round as their primary ball carrier, Isaiah Pacheco. He's not a guy you want getting 25 carries a game, but he can run and he can block and he can catch the ball out of the backfield and he can line up anywhere from wide receiver to the back of the eye. He's a perfect back for the likes of Patrick Mahomes, the do-everything quarterback with whom you can build an exceptionally versatile offense. So the most dramatic change, really, from the Jim Brown era and even from the 1970s and early 80s to, to today is that, yes, the running backs are more versatile, but the quarterbacks are now the focal point of offenses. Some final thoughts on the power run. The power run has evolved too. Some teams like San Francisco and Baltimore, which still base out of big personnel groups and still use fullbacks, block the play traditionally. But many teams now combine the power scheme with the read option. This is another topic we're going to talk about in greater detail as soon as next week. Power read, for example, is a spread offense staple that's matriculated up from the college game. On power read, the play side end is left unblocked. Nobody blocks him. Nobody kicks him out. Instead, the quarterback reads him while either riding a running back or 
a receiver coming in fast motion, jet motion, as they call it. So if the end works down to try to close off the gap inside of him, because that's often what ends are taught when the offensive lineman block down, you squeeze because you don't want to leave an open gap. If the end does that, the quarterback then gives to the ball, gives the ball to the back or the receiver running a sweep path. And he's got wide receivers out on the perimeter blocking for him. But if that end comes up the field to try to defend the sweep play, or if he widens, then the quarterback can pull it and run it himself up behind the pulling guard where the rest of the line's blocking power. You know, some teams don't like the idea of running your $200 million quarterback between the tackles. So maybe they opt for an RPO off of the power scheme instead. RPO, run pass option, another concept that we will get into in greater detail on the call sheet that gives the quarterback the ability to hand the ball off to a running back or throw it based upon the movement of a read key. On power RPO, that read key is the backside linebacker. He's the one left unblocked. The backside backer is usually the guy reading the pulling guard. So when the pulling guard goes, so goes the backer. And on a power RPO, the quarterback just reads that movement and tries to make that linebacker wrong. Did the backer move with the pulling guard? Good. Then I'm going to pull the ball and I'm going to throw it to a tight end running a little seam route or a slot receiver running a slant into the area that the backer has just vacated. But if the backer's playing slow and not flowing fast, then the quarterback will give the ball to the running back and now you're just running power. So it's really just the evolution of football. We see we see the, the, the type of running back evolving. We see the schemes evolving. The read option scheme itself like I was talking about on the show last week with Dave Stefano, the read option scheme itself is just a new twist on the old Veer scheme from the 70s where unblocked defenders were being read. So what's old is new again. And it will probably continue to be that way. Okay. So from Jim Brown in the 1950s to the smaller, quicker, more versatile backs of today, the running back position has evolved as well. The fact that teams play in more space today and emphasize the passing game has necessitated that change. And 20 years from now, it might change back. Who knows? Or it might change in some other way that we don't understand just yet. One thing is for sure, though, and and that is that Jim Brown, nearly 60 years after he played his last down, he remains the most dominant running back in the history of the game. So in the wake of his passing, it's absolutely worth remembering his considerable contributions to football both on and off the field. That's it, man. That's our show. I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me, giving me the opportunity to reflect on the greatness of Jim Brown and to talk a little bit of football history. I'm a, I'm a history teacher. Like I said, man, I like, I like to geek out on the, on the history of the thing. And I hope that you guys are willing to, to go there with me as we explain the way the game works and where things have come from and how things have gotten to be the way they are today. So I appreciate everybody's attention. We're going to be back next week with another episode. Uh, We're going to look a little bit at at what's going on around the league during OTAs. And then in our X and O segment, we'll take a closer look at the read option game. Some of the things we were just talking about, do a little bit of a deeper dive. And I'll have with me a really good defensive mind who will tell you how to defend those things and why they're all illegal, or at least from his defensive perspective, why they should be illegal. So thanks again, everybody. I hope everybody has a great week. Let's talk next week. Take care.